Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to spice up your bedroom is even better. Select almost any one item from adamandeve.com, punch in the offer code TMPP before checkout, and get 50% off. Then, Adam and Eve loads on the free. A bounty of free things. Gifts. It's like Christmas for your genitals. Enter offer code TMPP at checkout, that's TMPP as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, and you will get 10 tantalizing free gifts. A sexy item for him, a special gift for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. And six free spicy movies. And that's what we're all about here on the Thousand Movie Project Podcast, cinema. So again, that's 50% off of just about any item on the site, plus free shipping. So go to adamandeve.com today and enter the code TMPP with your order. That's TMPP, T-M-P-P, at adamandeve.com. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. A couple blocks away from my apartment, on 8th Street, there's a big blue grocery store. It's Latin, and it belongs to a chain, and its owner was recently charged with first-degree murder for hiring two MMA fighters to kidnap and torture, and then burn off the genitals of his wife's lover before leaving him to die in the Everglades. The doors to this grocery store are always open, and so pigeons end up flying into this grocery store all the time, and occasionally they shit on the foodstuffs that's right out in the open. The cashiers are often eating grapes out of the bag. But the most captivating thing about this particular grocery store is the group of older men who hang out on the sidewalk just beside the building. They're homeless, and they just talk all day. They sit on milk crates or on the pavement, the curb, and they laugh with each other. They opine about things. And some of them sell drugs. There was this one guy in particular who wore a baseball cap, and apart from just selling weed, he seemed to walk around in a perpetual cloud of it. He wore his baseball cap with the brim pulled down tight over his brow, and he leaned against the wall all day with his hands deep in his pockets. At dusk, he would light up a joint right there on the sidewalk whether the cops were around or not. I saw this one dealer guy day after day after day when I first moved in. I would pass him on the sidewalk every morning as I was walking to Pasión, until one day he wasn't there. And I thought nothing of it at the time. At the time, I probably didn't even notice. He wasn't there the next day, either. But instead, there was a picture of him, printed in black and white ink onto construction paper, and it was taped to that part of the wall where he normally leaned, with his hat pulled down and his hands in his pockets. When I was walking back in the other direction 12 or 13 hours later, the candle was still burning, or, or maybe it had been replaced with a new one, and there were flowers on the pavement around it, and cigarillos, and empty little shooters of sky vodka from the liquor store a block away. That whole stretch of sidewalk smelled for two days, like a dizzying mix of incense and weed and liquor and piss. There's a diner across the street from the grocery store, and it's got a service window outside. And during my first year in this apartment, they would sell colada and empanadas out of that window, beginning at around 7 a.m., long before they actually opened at 10. They don't do it anymore, but when they did, I would sometimes stand there with my coffee, sipping it, looking around. And sometimes, while I was standing there, I'd see a car idling at the curb. Usually there were white people inside, always different. They were my age or younger. And they would just be sitting there, parked at the curb, with the engine on, the air conditioner and the radio on, and the driver's side window would be wide open until, eventually, one of the old men from the neighborhood would walk by, swift as a fart, and toss a little bag, haphazardly, into the car. And then they would keep right on walking as if nothing had happened. Nothing at all. 
and the little white guy at the wheel, after invariably flinching in a quick flash of panic at the delivery, he would look down into his lap or into the lap of his passenger, and they would inspect the product for a moment, presumably to make sure that it was exactly what they'd paid for in some other location, and then, satisfied or not, they would drive off. And this is how the transactions tend to take place. But the older dudes in question don't only sell drugs. They also sell fruit and stolen cologne. Two mornings ago, one of them was selling a pair of Crocs that appear to have never been worn, and most days, as of late, you find the same stack of Kung Fu DVDs that they've been trying to sell for months. One day, they were all getting drunk around a massive Costco-sized pallet of Nutter Butters that had just appeared inexplicably on the sidewalk, took up the entire sidewalk, and they were almost not even seriously trying to sell the Nutter Butters. They were just holding the boxes out to people as they passed, laughing hysterically, Oye, oye, get it, Nutter Butter! Last year, when my car got broken into three times during the week of July 4th, I came to suspect it was a particular one of these guys who did it. He's the shortest of the group, the most stoic. He keeps a mossy goatee on his chin without the mustache. He's maybe five feet tall. I'd say he's in his 50s, but the sun has worked such a number on his skin, he could easily be 40, and it wouldn't really surprise me if he was 30. I always see him sitting and smiling among the other guys, but he's seldom ever talking, and for the most part, he keeps to himself. He walks in circles around the block, occasionally wanders into the grocery store to inspect the vegetables and the bags of chips. I've never seen him buy anything. You can often find him sitting on the bus stop and staring straight ahead, without saying anything or acknowledging anyone around him. And it sounds a little flighty, I know, but he's the only one of the bunch who carries around this vibe of, like, an intense internal life. Once, over the course of several days, I saw him reading a book in Spanish at various spots along the block. Sometimes he would be sitting with the book open in his lap and he would be staring off in that very distinct way of someone who's just read something that resonated with them, and now they're considering it. I see crackheads on a regular basis in my area, and drunks for sure, the occasional meth head with their ulcerated faces. The most memorable one of, of the small handful of meth heads I've seen in the area, he, he was also the first one, um, he was kind of fidgeting against the wall of the supermarket, and he was absentmindedly fingering a bag of shredded cheese and thumbing big snowy patches of it into his cheek like it was chewing tobacco. Lots of the homeless people in my area are conspicuously mentally ill. They get undressed in the rain, and there's a guy who lives under I-95 who sometimes comes out from underneath it and holds his penis up to the sun. When it comes to the vacant stares of the local homeless, I think I've got a dependable vibe at this point for who's drunk, who is sort of in some kind of stupor. There's a heavy-lidded heroin stare, there's an agitated fidgety crack stare, and then there's the casual stare of somebody who's just bored. But when this guy stares, it's, it seems pensive. He's considering something or lamenting something. He's just thinking. Whereas the other guys he hangs out with, uh, when nothing's going on and their buzz is waning and they're tired and overheated, you can see that they're just looking around at things. They're watching cars pass. They catch snippets of music from passing windows and they nod to it. There's a white Rolls Royce that goes through the neighborhood every day on its way to Brickle, and the guys outside the grocery store all tap each other's shoulders to point it out as it rolls by. The reason I think that this particular guy is the one who broke into my car is because he's the only one that I ever see walking around the block to that desolated suburban curb where my car was parked when it was broken into. Among these older men, there's a younger, spry, agitated young man, and he shades his brow while surveying the older men from across the street. It's a, it's a policing gaze, it's not a curious one. He's at least half the age of all these older men, maybe just a couple years older than myself. And I imagine he's their boss, so to speak. He wears dramatically oversized t-shirts, and I imagine it's to conceal a gun in his belt. And it was only after a few weeks of my noticing that he's always on the phone that I started to notice they always seem to be different phones. 
What do you think these older guys get paid each day for their service? That they're getting maybe 10% of every delivery? 20% sounds like it would be a lot, but let's go ahead and say it's 20. And let's say that they conduct five $50 transactions per day. 10% of 50 would be five, so double that. And 20, that means 20% is 10. 10 bucks per transaction plus five transactions equals 50 bucks. 50, 50 bucks a day. That sounds right. Um, 50 bucks sounds like enough money to keep them fed during the day and drunk at night, but also desperate enough that they'll be right back for work the next day and the next day and the next day. In my first year out of college, I got two jobs, one of which is the job that I currently have in a tutoring center at a local college, and the other was as a substitute teacher at a local high school. My alma mater, in fact. And it had only been four years since I'd been there as a student, so apart from the firing of one notoriously abusive assistant principal, the faculty and staff were all pretty much the same. As, as concerns that one assistant principal's firing, it happened after he forced a student to strip down to his underwear in front of class, and then he mocked the kid's dick for everyone to hear. It sounds impossibly outrageous, like there's no way in hell that this kind of thing could have happened without a bunch of students like calling him out and, and shutting it down and standing up for their classmate because they know their rights and the limits of, of the teacher's or the, the assistant principal's power. And maybe in 2019, that's how it would have happened. Things were certainly different in high school when I was subbing there in like 2013, 2014 than they were when I had been a student there just as, as recently as 2009. And I know that what seemed... The way that this major difference seemed to manifest is that all of the students were way more mindful of the limits of the teacher's authority. And they would make these, like, they would pride themselves on knowing shit about how, like, how things work. So many of them made, like, quippy remarks about how, oh, you need that hundred dollars a day, don't you? And I was like, how the fuck do they know what a substitute teacher makes? I never learned that, and I had always wondered when I was a student. But yeah, if you, if you have a bachelor's, it's a hundred dollars a day. If you don't have a bachelor's, I think it's seventy-five or eighty. But as concerns the incident with that assistant principal, from what I heard, the whole thing was kind of like that famous incident of somebody calling a fast food place and pretending to be a cop and coercing people over the phone into doing horrible shit just just as this disembodied voice of authority, what my high school was in the habit of doing as a preventative measure against shootings and knifings is they had these surprise inspections where an assistant principal and a cop would walk randomly into a row of classes and they would have one of those handheld metal detector wand type things and the class would be put on pause and then over the course of 15 or 20 minutes, Every student in the room would be frisked in front of the class, and they would have the wand swept over them. And our bags would be searched, and we would have to turn our pockets out. And this particular assistant principal, whom I remember walking with a certain swagger in his khaki pants and dress shirt and necktie, this guy was known to get particularly chummy with jocks in a way that, you know, to a high schooler's sensibility, seemed to make him the cool assistant principal. But he wasn't a cool assistant principal in the way that matters. He wasn't like the AP that students felt they could go to with their problems, you know, the authority figure that you could really talk to without fear of being judged. He, that's, that's a different kind of cool. This dude was the other type of cool. He was forbiddingly cool, just like the jocks themselves. He walked around with this kind of simmering air of, why are you talking to me? He was a 40-year-old fat male mean girl. 
And what had apparently happened to get him fired is that while he was doing one of these surprise inspections with, with the cop and the metal detector, he happened to carry his enterprise into a classroom where there sat a student with whom he'd had problems in the past. This kid had allegedly like questioned the assistant principal's authority in a very public way, a very embarrassing way, and he got away with it. So the AP is searching this kid, and he keeps suggesting out loud that he knows that this kid is up to something, that he's hiding something. And so the AP makes a particular show of having this kid empty out his bag. The assistant principal goes on to search its contents with absurd scrutiny. He fans through the notebooks, he even pulls open the pockets in the three-ring binders. Then he tells the kid to turn out his pockets, and so the kid turns out his pockets, and when he proves to have no contraband in those either, the assistant principal starts tugging at the fabric, as if to expose some pocket within the pocket. A pocket wherein this kid might be hiding, what, a thimble of weed? The whole class is watching with rising interest. Next, the AP tells the kid to take off his jacket. The jacket comes off, it gets inspected, and there's nothing in it. And the whole search just escalates bit by bit, fiber by fiber, and because the class is so clearly playing the role of audience at this point, the AP and this student seem to get caught up in their respective roles. The kid is like the roguish smart aleck whose quips are becoming increasingly risque and combative, and the assistant principal is trying to be the forbiddingly cool, dirty, hairy type authority figure who quips right back in a clever in a clever way. The kind of authority figure who knows the score, man. Finally, with the kid in question standing there in some kind of provocative, smirking silence, the AP tells him to drop his pants. And the kid does it, leaving his boxers on, whereupon the assistant principal, gesturing with his walkie-talkie at the kid's crotch, makes some remark about the bulge being unimpressive. Shit hit the fan afterward, as you can imagine, but from what I hear, the AP didn't even really get fired, just relocated. I, th I think to some juvenile detention center downtown. Anyway, I heard that his pay over there was going to be considerably lower than it was here, and this was said to be the real punishment. But whenever a teacher told me some detail of the fiasco and then re recounted, you know, the situation with the pay cut, they would kind of shrug and say that his pay over here at the high school hadn't been all that great to begin with, and that they couldn't imagine how it might feasibly go all that much more south of what it was. As a substitute teacher, I would sometimes end up chatting in a casual way with teachers, and sometimes they would end up get, taking a pretty serious tone with me about stuff, um, seeing, I think, that I was so young, and they would say, so, are you are you thinking about doing this forever, or being a teacher? And I would say, no, you know, maybe for a while, I'll get the certification, and then I'll, you know, I'll work in a school while I'm writing, and I'll use the teaching to pay the bills, etc. But then, and this happened several times, they would tell me flat out, don't do it. They'd say, if you're not going to do it forever, don't do it for a day. It's too comfortable, you'll get trapped. I can't, I can't honestly say that all or even most of the teachers seemed unhappy, but few and far between were the teachers at this school who, who appeared to really dig the place and the work and the students. Conversations in the teacher's lounge were about students in large part, about which ones were troublesome and which ones were hooking up, but it seemed mostly like you know this, this, big, this big circular table beside the coffee pot in the fridge around which select members of faculty would congregate for little chunks of time throughout the day. It seemed like that table served mostly as a platform for airing grievances about how the administration was fucking them this week, or how it was robbing this or that student group of some kind of perk or privilege. The discourse every day was about how the administration was basically violating some or other inalienable right of theirs. 
Those more earnest and concerned older colleagues would warn me sometimes about how they too had gotten into teaching with a plan, an exit strategy. They were going to do it for two or three years while they worked on their music or their novel or so that they could travel the world for a couple consecutive summers and then they were going to move on to another line of work, something more lucrative. But then things happened. They fell in love. A parent got sick. Life just popped up at them in the way that it, that it often does. And then two years turned to three, to seven, to twelve. Kids of their own came into the picture, and how else could they afford to insure their family except through the school's benefits? And where else were they going to find a job with such security as that which was supplied by the teachers' union? And also, by now, they've spent so many years in education that they don't look like an appetizing prospect for corporate America. Who's going to take a risk on this person? So they got into the teaching gig and, uh, you know, over so many years they go through the motions and the bills get paid and the kids grow up and vacations are had over the years and lots of art and entertainment is consumed, familial dramas come and go, the marriage endures or it doesn't, secrets are born and held and exposed. The vicissitudes of life find them even here in their quiet suburban life with their steady, quiet suburban job. And then one day, suddenly, they're 90 days from retirement. I noticed at this school that there was always a charming kind of serenity among the teachers who had done their 25-year stretch and who were about to retire. They never really voiced disappointment or regret about their choices. But I did notice, as a dewy-eyed 23-year-old with fanciful ideas about how a person is supposed to live their life, that a lot of those teachers, when you spoke with them privately, as a, as a peer, you know, as opposed to a, a teacher, an authority figure, they did seem to feel fucked over like deeply and irredeemably wronged by their job. They would say that the students are getting dumber and less respectful every year, and the parents are oblivious, and the funding is fucked, and the school board is corrupt. But, well, every professional's got a list of complaints about their work, right? Complaints about the fields, the culture, the management, the money. Maybe it's nothing special. In fact, once I got over the initial shock of how, how uniformly frustrated they all are, I came to realize that they're also all pretty much fine. They laugh at work. They meet at bars. They get together for barbecues. They talk about the shows that they're watching, and they'll tell you stories about the benders and the romances from 20 years past that sounded so much like the sexy, boozy business I was always trying to get up to myself. There are little romances taking place among certain teachers. There are infidelities. There are serious blood-and-steel rivalries and, and, and feuds. This, like any other place on the planet, is a place where humans act like humans, where life unfolds as life unfolds. These high school teachers got up very early in the morning, and they came to the same building to teach the same thing year after year, and they, they seemed frustrated about some aspects of that, saddened and angry about others, but resoundingly, they seemed fine, content, if not aboundingly happy. And when I look now at the bitter reality of this artsy part-time worker lifestyle that I'm living, namely the fact that it's just hopelessly unsustainable, and as I dread the idea of embracing those full-time doldrums, of, of being shackled to the benefits, and working less for a livable wage than for protection against the immediate bankruptcy that even a mild trip to the hospital will, will cause, in imagining a job from which I can't just walk away at any moment, it's scary. I don't think I like it. And I don't think any of these fucking teachers much like it either. But here they are, living with it. Because what else is there to do? They show up, they do the work, and then on the evenings and the weekends and the summers, they find time to lead good lives. And probably if I find a good place to show up and work hard each day, I suspect I will too.
I'd like to read you this passage from the Encyclopedia Britannica about why wolves howl at the moon. Quote, Wolves howl to communicate their location to other pack members. It's also been found that wolves will howl to their own pack members out of affection, as opposed to anxiety. Well, sometimes, after what feels like a particularly whiny or self-pitying segment, I'll say to myself, what am I doing? Why am I complaining like this in public? And it's helpful, in those moments, to think of the wolf yelling at the sky, signaling to his friends, Here I am! Here I am! I'm... I'm not... I'm not in a good place! I've mentioned a few times now that I'm friendly with a homeless guy who sells bottled water just a few paces west of I-95. His name is Rocky. He's bald and very thin, but muscular in a, in a wiry way. And he dresses each day in short shorts and a tank top. He's got a little fanny pack around his waist to handle the money. There's another older homeless man in the area, and he walks with the kind of waddle that suggests terrible back pain. This older man wears a tank top and a fedora, and one day, I was talking to Rocky at the intersection when this old man walked by, and Rocky fell silent. These guys squinted hard at each other as the older man passed, not saying a word. And once the man was beyond us, waddling his way underneath I-95, Rocky looks back at me, just quietly fuming. I said, who's that? And Rocky just shook his head, and then, enunciating with contempt, he said, Angel Medina Revenga, something like that. I, I don't know. He just he told me the guy's full name. Then he glanced back over his shoulder as Mr. Rubengo was limping beneath the overpass, and he turned his squinty gaze back to me and said, Thus, he's a bad man. I don't like him. I said, what'd he do? Why is he a bad guy? And then Rocky suddenly lights up, and he waves it off with a playful grimace. Nothing, man. He's just an asshole. Sometimes, on the sidewalk, I see them just staring at each other from across the street with quiet hatred, like two cats in the front window of opposite houses, or Maggie Simpson and the baby with the thick eyebrows. And I'm sure it's fucked up that I'm so amused by the decorous, quiet, mannered hatred between these two old homeless men. But the marrow of, of my funny bone is peppered with sin. When selling water beside the overpass, Rocky brings it along with him in a rolling cooler. He keeps a bottle of screwcap Moscato in that cooler too, and he takes a drag from it after every few red lights. He's drinking wine at 11 a.m. and drenched in sweat, but he's energized, he's friendly, he fist bumps everybody, and he sells water probably mostly because he's so energetic and fun to look at. Once in a while, he goes under the overpass to take a piss on one of the pillars. A food truck pulls up sometimes a block away, and if traffic is slow, Rocky will go over and he'll talk to the little guy who owns it, selling sandwiches to construction workers. I have no idea how much Rocky earns by selling water, but sometimes, if I'm going to happy hour with Bob and Linda at the end of the day, I'll see him on a little first floor window ledge beside their building. He's got a little boombox that he holds up to his ear, and he dances to it publicly. He's often smoking a cigar in the evenings, and I've seen him a couple times at dusk with one of those big 24-ounce beer cans from 7-Eleven. All I can say for sure is that he treats the water selling as a legitimate business. There have been three or four occasions where he and I stood there at the intersection talking for longer than the duration of a single red light. 
and Rocky will explain for me at a moment's notice how different days have different peak hours for selling water. And he's even got some remarks about meteor like meteorological influences on people's thirst, or at least their willingness to buy water. I see that he recently made an investment in his business by purchasing t-shirts that say, in big navy blue lettering on the front and back, $1 water. Last weekend, I was dog-sitting for Bob and Linda, and when I stepped out at dusk to visit Red Bar for an hour, I saw Rocky sitting there on that first-floor window ledge. His day's work was done, and he had a friend with him. Rocky is probably in his late 50s, early 60s, and the guy he was sitting with was much younger, in his 20s, easily. He was heavyset, he had dark hair, and he was slouched in a dramatic way, his forearms resting on his knees, his mouth hanging open. As I passed by, I called hello to Rocky, who was holding the boombox up to his ear with one hand and rubbing the young man's shoulder with his other. He saw me and leaped at me with more energy than usual, and he was glowing, overjoyed about something. Something I'm not proud to mention is that, though I'm friendly with a few of the local homeless guys, I don't always feel comfortable shaking hands. I do a fist bump, and, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I, d I don't shake their hand because they're homeless, and I suspect that their hands are dirty. I know that places in the area often don't let them in to use the bathroom. Uh, the Burger King in particular on Brickell is, is pretty intense about shouting them out the door. And so their recourse, as I've seen a million times now, is they just step off into a bush to take a shit or a piss, and they aren't able to wash their hands, obviously. And so I, I'm saying it here because, to, just to give you an idea of how taken off guard I was, because what's kind of doubly sad is that Rocky seems to know this about not just me, but people in general. And so, friendly as he is, he only ever ventures a fist bump when he's greeting familiar faces. He never goes in to shake anybody's hand. Today, though, he shakes my hand, lurches towards it. He, he puts his boombox down on the window ledge, and while shaking my hand, he grabs my wrist, and he pulls me over to the guy that he's sitting with. He addresses me as my friend, and introduces me to this other guy, whom he also calls my friend. So he's saying basically, this is my friend, meet my friend, my friend, meet my friend. The younger guy, still slouched, lifts his head with what looks like enormous effort as Rocky pulls our wrists together to make us shake hands. The young man's eyes meet mine, and they are like nothing I've ever seen. The lids are swollen and discolored, and the whites are pure red. They're slick and glistening with something more gelatinous than tears. It looks like his eyeballs are smeared in Vaseline. His pupils are dilated to what looks almost like the size of nickels, and he looks both powerfully demonic and horribly sick. His mouth is open, and he's completely out of it, but also smiling just a little. Rocky, marionetting the young man by the wrist, forces our hands together. I clasp his hand and shake it gently. And he seems to be trying to shake mine in return, but I can only feel the faintest kind of squeeze. I can't think of something, cl some clever excuse, but I really want to get the fuck out of there. So I tell Rocky that I've got to go to work, even though it's 7pm, and I apologize that I can't stay and talk. Rocky just nods, enthusiastic, and he picks up his boombox and he blows me a kiss, and he laughs, and he gets back to dancing next to his young friend. I walk to Red Bar, and I go straight to the bathroom, and I wash my hands for a long time, with the water running as hot as it'll go, and then I do it again. A couple days later, I see Rocky selling water, but I don't stay and chat. The crossing light was on, so I just darted across the street while he was peddling water in his shirt with that logo on the front and back. One dollar water. One dollar water. I've seen him up to now as an innocent older dude who's making the best of a bad situation. The fact that he maybe does hard drugs, 
the idea that he does any of the things that might be inferred by what I saw when we crossed paths on Brickle the other night, does it change anything about what I see every morning when he's out there sweating and sipping Moscato and selling bottled water with a smile, trying to stay afloat? If it does, if it makes him predatory or sinister, am I supposed to treat him as anything other than the very nice man he's always been to me at the intersection under the overpass? I feel like there's an answer to this and that it should be coming to me naturally. And now, we go to the mail. Today's letter comes from Lorenzo and Kendall. Lorenzo didn't write anything, he simply referred me to a thread from Ask Reddit After Dark. It's a question posed by a user named Jazzy Genie. Jazzy Genie asks, Would you still jack off if when you came your semen was just one big sperm, and afterward you had to fight it? Thanks for writing in, Lorenzo. It's a good question, and it reminds me of something that came to me clear as day when I was reading the middle volume of Don Winslow's Cartel Trilogy. The three books in Winslow's trilogy are defined by the conflict between two men. There's the head of a drug cartel named Adan Barrera, and an agent of the DEA named Art Keller. And they fucking hate each other, but they can't get at each other. And so, as though in a sprawling game of chess, these two men, they, they're constantly positioning their resources, their soldiers, in such a way as to destabilize and, ideally, to kill one another. And so when finally, toward the end of that middle volume, Adan, Barrera, and Art Keller meet face-to-face -face for a sit-down, it makes for one of the most propulsive, engaging, sphincter-tightening bits of suspense in the entire series. Because up to this point in the book, tons of characters have died as a result of these two men's quests to kill each other. And now here they are sitting down across from one another, and they're talking, and each is as eloquent and as philosophical as the other and as, as driven. What came to mind when I read that scene is, yes, this is what makes for a great story, is the tale of two worthy adversaries coming face-to-face. Art Keller is rabidly gifted and dedicated when it comes to his law enforcement work, and Adan Barrera is just as talented and gifted and dedicated when it comes to his own enterprise. It's the same thing that makes boxing so universally compelling, is that there aren't, you know, teams involved. It's not a collection of personalities working under the same flag. It's two distinct men, equally well-trained and similarly disposed, confronting one another in a confined space from which there is no escape. So the question is, if I knew that masturbating would cause me to ejaculate a large, hostile fish from the end of my penis, a fish with whom I would then be forced to do combat, would I be less inclined to masturbate? The answer is probably yes. I would probably not be very cavalier about it. But another thing that this scenario brings to mind, incidentally, is this thread that I saw on Reddit a few years ago, where somebody was addressing was addressing Redditors who had previously been inmates in a maximum security prison. And he was asking those inmates to talk about, talk about how they readjusted to civilian life. And if there were any behaviors that rolled over from the big house to the suburban house, so to speak, a lot of ex-convicts um, responded. And a lot of what they said is stuff that you could probably guess. They developed these kind of military-type habits. Dudes who get, you know, sprung from the clink, as Otis Driftwood might say, when they go on to live casual civilian lives on the straight and narrow, they find that out in the world, 
Compared to everyone else, they are insanely regimented. Their eyes spring open at a certain hour every morning. Many of them said that they tend to eat their meals at the same rigid time. Sometimes, having been deprived for so many years uh, from of the uh, gargantuan amounts of sugar that we consume in our daily lives, these former inmates come out into the world finding that they no longer really have a palate for candies and, and the really ecstatically sugary foods that we consume all the time. But then there's this one dude toward the end of the forum where he says, you know, it's it's the funniest thing. Yeah, I'm even though I'm not in prison anymore, still, every time when I sit on the toilet to take a shit, I take one leg completely out of my pants. And he just leaves it at that. A few minutes later somebody was like, uh, can you can you explain this? And he goes, Yeah, well, if you're sitting on the toilet and you've got your pants around your ankles, then if somebody comes to stab you, you can't run away. So I'd say it's advisable to take your pants off altogether, but, you know, it's a little more practical to just take one foot out. And anyways, the reason that this comes to mind is because I imagine that the fish who springs into existence, this fetid, jizzy combatant, is flying into the world while I'm standing there with my pants around my ankles. So I'd have to masturbate with one foot out of my pants. Or maybe with my pants off altogether. Maybe nude. That reminds me, incidentally, there's this episode of Malcolm in the Middle <laughs> where um, where Francis and his buddies um, in mil where Francis, the older brother, he's in military school, and he and a bunch of his classmates have to do this exercise where they go into the woods for the weekend, and the goal is to take with them as few things as possible and just try to kind of live off of the earth. Well, I remember that his best friend shows up for that assignment totally naked, and he's got camouflage paint all over his body from head to toe, and the only thing he's bringing with him is this massive Rambo-style knife. Naked, camouflaged, armed with a knife. This, this would be how I would have to masturbate. Because, lucky me, it just so happens that my real kink, the thing that turns me on more than anything, is the glory of battle. Two worthy adversaries going head to head, giggity, with nothing so disruptive between them as even an article of clothing. And I ask you, what more worthy adversary could there be than a large, hostile jizzfish that sprang from my dick and now wants immediately to fight me? I suspect it would even have my face. Lorenzo, I thank you for your question, and I hope that this answers it. I've loved Tom Waits for a long time now, and if you would like to fall in love with him, I suggest that you watch his performance in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is available on Netflix. He plays a grizzled old prospector, and it, I, it strikes me as a crime that he didn't win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Waits' music, however, is a bit tougher to fall in love with. It's abrasive at first, it's, it's weird and loud and creepy, and at times it's sad. Once, on a talk show in the early 80s, Tom Waits was sounding kind of drunk, and when the host pointed out that he, Tom, had a bottle right there in front of him, Waits quipped, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. I thought that was the cleverest thing I'd ever heard. And then, a few months later, I learned that Dorothy Parker said it. Speaking of which, I, I remember reading a Stephen King novel some years ago. It was called Duma Key. Um, it's, it's one of his worst, in case you were wondering. And I remember being similarly kind of dazzled by the wit of a character who says, you can lead a whore to culture, but you can't make her think. I turned that phrase over in my head a million times, and then, turns out, Dorothy Parker said that too. So, one of the many takeaways from this segment is that neither Tom Waits nor Stephen King is as clever as Dorothy Parker, and that they shamelessly steal her jokes. But, to be fair, those two dudes are pretty clever themselves. Tom Waits especially. In one of his tracks, Tom Waits refers to circus music as sounding like, quote, electric sugar. And in another track, he describes eating a piece of meat that is so raw, it gets up off the plate and tries to pick a fight with his cup of coffee. 
and he says that the cup of coffee, quote, wasn't strong enough to defend itself. In one of my favorite songs of his, called The Part You Throw Away, which I actually only like as, it, as it's performed live on an album called Glitter and Doom, Waits writes, The bone must go, the wish can stay, and the kiss don't know what the lips will say. And then, later in the song, even more beautifully, I think, he says, All of your letters burned up in the fire, and time is just memory mixed with desire. Now, what do those two passages mean? The bone must go, but the wish can stay, and the kiss don't know what the lips will say. I, I have no idea what they mean, but, God help me, I know that they're true. I, I come upon this issue with Leonard Cohen all the time. There's, there's one song I love where he says, We were locked in this kitchen, I took to religion, and I wondered how long she would stay. I needed so much to have nothing to touch. I've always been greedy that way. I don't know what Leonard means by that, but I do know that I agree with it. When Tom Waits gets himself knowingly into some kind of tricky situation, he writes, I pulled on trouble's braids. And he's got a real good clankety song called God's Away on Business. And this, in my whole recent panic about work and money, seems to be about two or three different kinds of true. And there goes another episode. I'm trying to sort of divest myself of this this impulse at the end of every episode to riff for a little bit about how disappointed I am with the final product. Uh, I'm, I'm super delighted that Adam and Eve has agreed to become a sponsor of the show. Was, I think it's very generous of them to sort of get on board with this. And yeah, I will keep you appraised of how that turns out. I'm still I'm still looking for sponsors, although not quite so aggressively. Part of that is because it is now, I'm recording this on uh, November 17th. I'll hopefully be posting it the same day. But the college where I work is, is about to go into recess, I think in the second week, the beginning of the second week of December. And then I think it's almost a month without any work. So I've applied to a couple of restaurants in the area. And uh, I've got a, today's Sunday, and I've got an interview with one of them on Tuesday. And the other one um, I spoke with people who worked there a couple times. I filled out an application, and they said that no one was really responding to their um, their posts, their you know invitations for people to apply. And so they said, "We'll definitely be calling you," but I haven't heard back. Anyways, because I've got that ideally, you know, fingers crossed, I've got that impending obligation, and probably for a little while I'll be wielding two jobs at once. I imagine I'm going to sort of lighten up with that search for more sponsors. But I'm getting into a comfortable rhythm again with um, with the daily blogging, and I'm about to podcast script, like entirely scripted podcast episodes ahead of schedule, so it's nice. Also in Miami now, there's this perpetual kind of overcast sky, and there's a nice breeze. Right now it's 65 degrees outside, which, so things are good, they're settled. Last night I went and had drinks with a friend who told me not to say anything about our conversation, um, any of our conversations on the podcast, so I won't identify the person, although it is interestingly... Um, this was one of two people last week to tell me, um, like, to have a conversation with me and then say, by the way, don't mention anything that we talked about on your blog or your podcast, Instagram, anything, which is cool. And also, the well, speaking of which, the friend prompted me to think, like, to exp okay, I'm going to talk about details of the conversation, but say nothing of the person. The friend prompted me 
um, to talk about people who have gotten mad at me for things that I disclosed in the blog or the podcast and asked about the frequency with which people um, sort of send me a text or call me and say, I read what you wrote about me. Uh, which does happen fairly often. And uh, there have been a couple instances I can think of where people were really upset. And, but mostly I don't write about people in a very obvious way unless it's good, and I, like unless it's favorable or I'm talking about something that was pleasant. I'm a little on edge about something that I'm posting to the blog this week about a person with whom I had a very bad encounter. And uh, the likelihood of her seeing it, I think, is pretty slim, but um, I'm still on edge. There, uh, both of my parents have, have made remarks about things that they read that were kind of about them. But then, then this friend asked me why I do that, if I know that there's the chance of, of the people in my life getting mad at me. And I realize, like, for, I think I've discussed this in the past, that I feel like by process of elimination, the people who are on, on board with me writing about them are going to stick around, and the people who are not cool with it are going to go away. And then I'll be left eventually just in the company of people who are cool with it. But also, I just feel like that's kind of all I have is my secrets. And like, if you've got a knack for language, but I haven't done anything in all that interesting with my life, it's not like I've it's not like I've passed legislation. It's not like I've climbed a mountain or started a major movement. All I've done is live like a typical anonymous life. And um, yeah, I've. if you've got away with words, then I guess all you can really do is talk about the embarrassing things in your average anonymous life that other people will read or listen to. And they'll be like, oh, I experienced that. I never want to talk about it. I've never told anyone about it. No one has ever talked to me about their experience of it. But hey, here's this person putting it in the right words. And I found consistently that the things that the things that I post on the blog or the things that I mention in the podcast that are the most revealing or in like con conceivably the most embarrassing, those are always the ones that people tend to respond to the most. So I'm cool with it. It's fine. But then we got this person and I were talking about like art things. And I never really have those artsy conversations in part because I don't really have any friends like in my immediate vicinity. I, I have friends who are writers, but like two. And I know I don't really talk to them that often. I have a good friend who's an artist. Her name is Noelle Kasowitz, and she does some really interesting stuff. And she's being interviewed on a regular basis about the work that she's doing in uh, DC at the moment. Uh, you should check her out. But yeah, I never really get to sit down with someone and have artsy conversation where we discuss the meaning of things and the mediums. So it was weird. It's a mode of conversation that I'm not really versed in now. Like I did it a lot in college, especially because I was taking all these classes on postmodern theory and deconstructive ethics and shit. And so we had to read Derrida and Lacan. And now all the conversation I ever seem to have with people is pretty concrete. It doesn't, it never gets abstract. But it was cool to do that for an evening. I haven't done it in a very long time. And I think part of the reason I never have artsy conversations anymore like I did in college is because being sort of solo in, in it and not really engaging with other artists, like obviously that's a big part of it. But if you're not engaging with other artists and you don't feel like you're really contributing to any kind of artistic discourse, but rather you're just working with the hopes of establishing a career, it kind of sands away... I don't want to say the pretension because I don't think it's pretentious to have sort of high-minded abstract ideas about what you're making, but it sands away at the time that you spend seriously contemplating what you're doing or your influences and stuff because you're just so minded, so work-minded, and because you're just trying to turn out the next thing and the next thing, which uh, is not necessarily the case with like uh, with visual artists who have, to, who have to raise and then spend a lot of money in order to sort of realize their visions. I think filmmakers and musicians in particular are, are, don't really have the privilege that writers do of like, okay, you finish one thing, you edit it, you post it, you move on to the next. But yeah, it was interesting to have that conversation, exercise those muscles, and then later in the evening find myself alone thinking about the conversation, wondering why I don't have those conversations anymore. Otherwise, though, the week was pretty much characterized by that um, hunt for a job and the applying and sort of the phone tagging with managers at different places. 
but also uh, there was like this this sort of kerfluffle at work. I, I like the I like the word rakukus. John Updike wrote a poem that won an award somewhere. I, I don't remember the whole poem. All I remember is that it begins with the lines, "The cars in Caracas make a rakukus." Anyway, so there was something of a rakukus at work where it was just it wasn't so much a fight or like an argument or an altercation. It was just like a really kind of abusive, out of line text messages from a text a, a pair of text messages from a superior who kind of lost their shit and it reminded me a lot of what it was like when I was working for the ghostwriter and I would get similar messages and then toward the end of my tenure working for the ghostwriter I um I would get really mad at myself for the fact that I'd allowed that I'd allowed myself to endure that kind of shit and coincidentally like the day after I got those two really long really insane text messages my one of my closest friends Bob who comes up on the podcast and in the blog a lot he got like a similar treatment from his superior, and um, so we were comparing notes about it at Red Bar on Friday. And it's prom- it's gotten me thinking about, like there was something I was writing a long time ago, I forget what it was. It might have been a fiction thing that never really got off the ground, but it was like the th- themes of forgiveness. And I, and I remember listening recently to a Mark Maron. Mark Maron was interviewing um, David Letterman, and apparently David Letterman was at... The Comedy Store, just, is it The Comedy Store? Yes, not The Laugh Factory, it's The Comedy Store. And um, The Comedy Store is famous for being sort of like the batting cages for stand-up comedians, and it's been that way since the 70s. And apparently in the 70s, there was this big, or maybe it was the early 80s, there was this big um, rupture among the comics who regularly went there, and I think it's because, I think the fight, the falling out, was over their wanting to be paid a portion of the door charge and the owner at the time didn't want to pay them that. And so there was like a strike, I think, and a lot of comics, it was some of the like big name comics who were there, the ones who attracted a lot of people, just stopped going. And um, some of the comics continued to go. And so Mark Marin is interviewing David Letterman about that period, and he's asking Letterman, you know, are you still in touch with some of those people? And he said, no, uh, we had the, we had our falling out over that, and now, you know, 40 years later, I look back and I say, was it worth it? Saying that, like, he can't even remember all of the details of the falling out, it kind the fact that he can't remember the details of the falling out kind of suggests that it wasn't worth falling out over. But I don't know, I'm definitely bringing baggage into this employer thing. And the baggage has to do with uh, what it was like working with the ghostwriter. And not necessarily strictly what it was like working with the ghostwriter, but the fact that I demonstrated such spinelessness in working with the ghostwriter. Um, but anyways, so I'm thinking about that. And I remember, I think it's in No Country for Old Men that um, Cormac McCarthy says forgiveness is a very solitary thing. Like it's the one thing that a group of people cannot do. He says like a group of people can come together and love something together and trade notes on how much they love it. They can come together and hate something and trade notes on how much they hate it and why. And But with forgiveness, it's something that no, every person by themselves has to step away. Every, every you know, gr- a group of victims or something, they have to step away and they have to to isolate themselves, think about what they feel of the situation and about the person who did whatever they did, and then they have to come to forgiveness by themselves. And yeah, I thought it was kind of brimming with things to say, but now I've been sitting over the mic for like four minutes in total silence, just staring at the roof of the building across from me. So I guess I will wrap things up here. Remember that if you go to adamandeve.com and you enter the offer code TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, you're going to get 50% off of any given item, plus a box with a bunch of other gifts. All right, thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.
You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and to check out our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can always throw some money at Thousand Movie Project on PayPal or Venmo, or you can buy one of our two ebooks, Horny Nuns and The Ballad of Felicio Knightley, which both cost a buck and are both available on Amazon.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.